Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, April 8th, 2015. Still having our light episode this week. I'll be continuing our ramblings through Genesis. Although technically this week I'm rambling through Galatians. In order to get the interpretive keys for understanding the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down and stop and open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God and no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And we actually open up our Bibles to see what God's Word says when we read it in context. Yeah, it's kind of an important thing. So, Because, listen, what the Bible says is so much better than the self-made ideas that people are trying to read into the Scripture. The, they're kind of putting over God's Word and, and proof-texting to try to say, this is what God's Word teaches when it doesn't. And so uh, what we try to do here is teach you how to employ sound biblical exegesis, good hermeneutics, a Christ-centered reading of Scripture, and a proper distinction of law and gospel so that you can have the basics that you need to uh, not only know what Scripture says, but also to protect yourself from many of the false teachers and Bible twisters that are out there. And unfortunately, those people are the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, Authors, people put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, and you know, you get the idea. So, uh, what we're doing on what we do uh, once a week here. Normally, it's on Wednesdays, although we do move it from time to time. We uh, we have what I call our light episode, but that doesn't mean the topic is light. Like not at all. And uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, it's either me doing an in-depth biblical teaching or we pass it off to somebody else to do an in-depth biblical teaching. You know, I'm one of these guys that, you know, if I find somebody's doing something stellar and I've got to pass it along, then, you know, oftentimes on our our light episode, that will be the place that we pass it along. And so uh, this week is going to be no different than any other week in the sense that we're doing it on Wednesday and we're going to, we've, last week we started up again my lectures as I ramble my way through the book of Genesis. And these were recorded at the congregation that I serve up in Oslo, Minnesota. So, um, And like I said at the beginning of the program, we are, uh, <laughs> although today technically it's my rambling through Genesis, we'll be rambling through um, a large swath of the book of Galatians today 
as uh, we look at this idea that Scripture interprets Scripture. So we're going to look at what the book of Galatians has to say and teach us about how to rightly understand what's going on in the book of Genesis. I hope that makes sense. So without any further ado, here is my uh, ramblings through the book of Genesis via the book of Galatians. Here we go. All right, we have been working our way through the book of Genesis. We're following the scarlet thread found in God's Word. And that scarlet thread is referring to Jesus. And these are his descendants. And so that's why Scripture goes through these. And we're up to the story of Abram at this point. His name has not been changed to Abraham, but he's Abram. And we're employing the technique known as Scripture Interprets Scripture. And this is kind of an important thing in this sense, that without the interpretive keys given to us in the New Testament as to how to understand the Old, we would not really be able to understand the Old Testament at all and see that it's about Christ. So as we get going, let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you who would have all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, By your almighty power and unsearchable wisdom, break and hinder all the counsels of those who hate you and who by corrupt teaching would destroy it. Enlighten them with the knowledge of your glory that they may know the riches of your heavenly grace and in peace and righteousness serve you, the only true God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So the story of Abraham, or Abram at this point, we began to unpack the interpretive keys for understanding this by looking at the book of Galatians. And we're part of the way through. So the idea here, and I'll elaborate this on this a little bit, is that God's Word actually interprets God's Word. Scripture interprets Scripture. Clear passages always govern unclear passages. Now, when I taught here a few years ago, we, uh, we, I gave a lecture on hermeneutics, the basics of you know, how to understand God's Word correctly, and we talked about that when we look at God's Word, we have to look at texts that deal with the same topic or the same issue so that they can shed light on each other. Now, real quick, does anyone remember back a couple years ago when I lectured on that, why the verse that says that in Christ there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, why that passage from Ephesians does not cannot be used when it comes to deciding whether or not women can be in the pastoral office. Uh, It's not salvation? It's about salvation, salvation. yeah. It's about salvation. It's not about, it's not whether or not women can be in the pastoral office. So it's an incorrect referent. That's correct. That's a good way to put it. So the idea in is you, you just can't take any old verse and say this says that and this says the other thing. If you're going to, ha- if you're going to deal with texts that deal with baptism, you have to deal with baptismal texts. If you're going to talk about what the Lord's Supper is, you have to use texts that talk about the Lord's Supper, not something else. When you talk about whether or not Jesus is God in human flesh, you go to passages that talk about that topic in context. Does that make sense? So what we're doing here is we're, as, you know, we're, we've begun in Genesis 12 to get to the story of Abram. We know that God has promised to bless all nations, all the families on the earth through Abram. We know that this is the case, and we learned last week when we were looking at Galatians to help us get the interpretive keys to understanding what we're going to read in the story of Abraham, that that was the gospel. 
that the announcement by God that all the families on earth would be blessed through Abram was in fact the gospel. You know, in an Old Testament type and shadow kind of form, but it was a very explicit promise given. So where we're going to do today, we're back in the book of Galatians. I'm going to back up a little bit so that we keep our context. We're in Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to move forward, and then we're going to spend some time in Romans 3 and Romans 4. Here's what it says. So remember, Paul is writing this sharply worded email to the people in Galatia. (laughs) Okay, all right, so it wasn't an email. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sharply worded. This is the day before email, so, yeah. Here's what it says. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And remember I said last week that over and again you see that Paul keeps referencing Christ's crucifixion as if it's the definitive argument. It's like ground zero in his thinking. Everything spreads out from that. Does that make sense? In fact, let me show you kind of a way I like to think about things. Um, Have I? No, I haven't. I I don't even. I can answer my own question. I've never told you guys this idea that theology isn't linear. That's an important way to think of it. It's three dimensional, kind of in a solar system kind of way. Many people think that theology. They kind of think of it where. You know, you got one, you got A, B, point, one here, two here, and then maybe C over here, and, and it kind of drills down like that. It's kind of like that outline that's very linear in its thinking. Although you can talk about theology in that way, I, I don't think that's the best way to describe it, nor is it the best way to think about it. In, when we talk about different theological systems... We understand kind of some terms here, and let me let me put it to you this way, and then we'll, I'll diagram what I think it what it really looks like. We talk about something called a material principle and a formal principle, and this these are not superfluous terms, nor are these just abstract concepts. We'll talk about this and how they actually play into different things. A material principle would be the central doctrine of a theology or a religion, okay? The formal principle would be the sources of authority that are recognized within that system. Now, let me give you an example. In Mormonism, Mormonism's material principle is something called the law of eternal progression, which teaches that as man is, God once was, as God is, man may become. So their material principle is what's called deification. They believe that man can become gods. Right? So that's the center of their theological system. The formal principle is their sources of authority that they recognize as, you know, as, as having the authority of God behind it. And here's what Mormons say. They believe the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. They believe in the King James Bible insofar as it's correctly translated. And what they mean by that is is that any time the King James Bible contradicts the Book of Mormon or the other things, that's not correctly translated, kind of a convenient way of looking at it, as well as the prophetic statements of the living prophets. 
that are collected, you know, the living prophet in uh, Salt Lake City in Utah. So that's their formal principle. Does that make sense? So the idea then is that rather than looking at theology linearly, let's look at it as, as this way. So the material principle is the thing that sits in the center, and the formal principle is what gives it its gravity, and all other doctrines within a system, a theological system, orbit around those two. Does that make sense? If we were to talk about Roman Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, what is their central material principle? A little tough if you're not familiar with their system. It's always going to it's going to end up being salvation of some kind, salvation by grace, but it's not through faith alone. What's their material principle? Uh, their formal principle be the written word of God. Yeah, the, the Pope will play in there, in, in, yeah, in part. Um, you would have any time when the Pope is speaking ex cathedra, church tradition. Those are the things that fall into their, uh, into their material principle. Yeah, the Roman Catholics actually believe that, you know, to justify some of their, their doctrines, which are not found in Scripture, they'll say that that came through um, word-of-mouth tradition, you know, passed down. They'll say, well, listen, we don't have everything the apostles said, and nobody said we do. And so they say, well, the apostles, they don't only give us the written word of God that we have in the New Testament, but there was other teachings that they taught as well, and that came down to us through the oral tradition. And that's what Luther called the magic bag, you know. You know. <laughs> so we got prayers to the saints just reaching the magic bag of oral tradition. See, it's in there, you know. And anything you want can come out of the magic bag. Yeah, it is very similar to the Pharisaical system in that sense, and what they call the tradition of the elders. Now, um, when you talk about um, some of the Wesleyan traditions, the Wesleyan traditions, their material and formal principle, their uh, the material principle would be perfection. Yeah, the perfection of the saints: be perfect as your Father in heaven is imperfect, and they would say Scripture alone. But if you have... Now, here's the, here's the funny thing. So if you have at the center of your theology Christian perfection, what this is going to do is it's going to uh, determine the orbit of the other doctrines. Does that make sense? So if Christian perfectionism is the central core doctrine, and that's going to be your constant focus... What happens to Christ's work on the cross? Does that say in a tight orbit around the center, or does that end up way far flung out there so you can barely see it? It gets put way out here in an outer ring, right? It might as well be Pluto, although I think Pluto got demoted. Poor thing. I think it needs to go see a psychologist support. You know, I was once a planet, and now I'm not. You know, it's terrible. But uh, Okay? So the idea then is, is that when we study theology, when we study different theological systems, it's important for us to get what is at the center and what you consider to be uh, you know, authoritative words of God. You know, in, in many Pentecostal circles, they do not believe in sola scriptura, and so they believe in living prophets and living apostles. And so that, that affects how things work in their system. And so what ends up happening in many Pentecostal circles is, is their material principle are the sign, signs and wonders of the Spirit. You know, you have to have manifest, you know, speaking in tongues and things like that. And, um, and then they have living apostles and prophets that 
supplement God's word. And as so they have kind of a split authority. Now, for Lutherans, our central doctrine is justification by grace alone through faith. That's the central doctrine. Our, our formal principle is sola scriptura, scripture alone, period. And that affects what, how we do. With that as the center, Christ and his work, that's the actual center. It's not thrown out here into a far orbit. That's the thing that, in which everything else orbits around. Does that make sense? So you have to think about it. When we talk about, when we talk about different people's theology, it's important to get, you know, spend some time understanding what's at the center of their doctrine because that's going to affect all the other pieces of it. Yeah. Do you contrast the Lutheran view of the um, church fathers as opposed to the Roman Catholic view of it? Yeah. During the time of the Reformation, the, uh, the Lutheran reformers had this idea, if Scripture alone is, is inerrant, if Scripture alone is the thing that we trust, then we would expect, because of what Scripture said, that within church history there would be times when there would be sound doctrine and there would be times that the church would be under assault from heresy. And so when we look at the writings of the church fathers, what we would expect to see is that there would be orthodox church fathers and the Lutherans weighted the earlier guys as heavier than the later guys for the very reason that they were closer to the, the proclamation of the gospel. And everybody has to be judged according to Scripture. What, what, what happened in the Roman view, the writings of the church fathers, they would, you know, they would go to somebody in the 6th or 7th century, and at which time there were these doctrinal developments where you would see some of these peculiar doctrines that became you know, embedded in Roman Catholicism. And they say, see, this church father talks about it, therefore it has to be true. We'd say, well, no, the earlier fathers didn't say that, the scriptures don't say that, so that guy later is wrong. You know, they kind of they kind of they see it differently. So they would see that as evidence of, of the oral tradition existing, and we would see that as evidence as departing away from scripture. No, they don't. The Romans have not canonized phoenixes, but you're right. You know, Clement of Rome, who wrote fairly early, that's actually a, an early document, and the gospel's wonderfully preached in his epistle. But, uh, you know, what's funny is, is that you can't canonize his work. Why? It's got a clear error in there. He actually believed in the mythology of the phoenix. He thought that that was a legitimate bird, you know. So, you know, you sit there and go, okay, well, he, he obviously didn't have... Uh, a 21st century understanding of zoology, right? So, and I'm glad that his, his uh, epistle, although it was written early, did not make it into the canon. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to say that the scripture is inerrant. <laughs> yeah? I'm just, I'm just curious, are there any of the authors of scripture, do we have any writings from them that are non-canonical? And I'm just wondering that everything Paul wrote wasn't necessarily... I don't think there was anything, I, we don't have anything extant that wasn't canon. That, so the idea was is that clearly, in fact, when you read the New Testament, there were, there's references to do, other documents. And as a result of it, for instance, um, Paul in, the, in one of the Corinthians epistles refers to a previous letter that he had written that is actually not in Scripture. And we can tell by how he's referencing it that it's not actually in Scripture. And so, you know, one of the questions that comes up theologically is, is that how many Corinthian epistles were there? Because we have First and Second Corinthians, and some scholars think that there may have been up to five letters written by Paul to, uh, to the church in Corinth. Well, if one, of those, if one of those turned up today, well, we need to add it to our Bible as Third Corinthians. 
kind of the question. It's not extant. If it showed up today, you know, would we add it in? I think we'd be tempted to. But because the church did not recognize it as, as apostolic in that sense and didn't keep it and, you know, and, and pass it along so that it would be copied like with the other letters, I think that would, that's, that's the argument in and of itself that you, we couldn't add 3 Corinthians if it were to show up. And along with this train of thought, what about when Paul talks about, uh, I think he doesn't he do this in Corinthians where he says, um, it's not the word of God speaking, but I am speaking? Yeah, he does that in one of his letters. Does that mean after that point in that letter, or just that? Just that point, just that point. He, that yeah. So what's funny is, is that Paul even makes a, you know, it's kind of an aside that he puts in there. This is, this is, not, the, this is not the Lord speaking, but this is me, you know, which, which means he, you know, he's basically saying by that, everything I'd written prior to that, this is coming from the Lord. Let me give you my personal opinion. Now I'll get back to what the Lord is saying, All right? And it's, and it's preserved in there, right? He, uh, he understood that he, what he was writing had the authority of Christ behind it. So that point, though, he would say, oh, this isn't actually scriptural, but it's Right. Oh, sort of like when the like, for instance, when like, like the, those those prophets that weren't prophets, like uh, the what are they called? Uh, like the false prophets that speak. Well, yeah. That's not scripture. They're just saying something. Right. Exactly. Right. We we have the words of false prophets in the scriptures, and we know that their words were not true. Yeah. yeah this is that that yeah, exactly that that's a similar way. So. And then, you know, so when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, we're not, you, you, there's certain things you're not saying. You're not saying that when a false prophet is speaking falsely and it's recorded in Scripture that what he's saying is true. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, what we're saying is the account of what he said is accurately recorded. Does that make sense? So, yeah. All right. So when we think of theology, we have to think of it in terms of like this, that it has a center of gravity and there's a mass to it and other doctrines orbit around that center. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, Judy. So for um, uh, our new solar system here, who, tell me who the formal principle is. Okay. Material principle is justification by grace through faith. Formal principle is scripture alone. Okay, just scripture. Just scripture. Right. That's the important thing. So that requires us to rightly understand God's word, period. And that, and that is a lifelong process. So let's come back to our text here. And we're working, in fact, let me come back to this. We're kind of working out some categories, which I think are important. And we're going to rightly understand by reading this law and gospel and you're going to note that these categories are not invented by Lutherans. These are categories given in the book of Galatians. And this book is telling us how to understand all of Scripture. So this is one of the interesting things about the Bible. Is that within the Bible, there are interpretive keys. And there are sections of the Scripture that you can almost describe them as a canon within the canon. Which some people say, well, you can't have a canon within a canon. That's like a nut within a nut. But no, the, the reality is we do have a canon within the canon. And that central portion of it, there's, there's parts of the Bible that tell us how to read the other parts. And without those sections, you, are, you will always grope around in the dark and never get what Scripture is saying. And this is why we're spending time in Galatians, because Galatians and then Romans tells us how to interpret Genesis 12 through, what, 18 or 20, where, actually past that, down 22, 23, uh, in talking about the story of Abraham. 
So when we're talking about law and gospel, keep this in mind. We're talking in this sense, Paul's making a distinction, not in generic law, in, in, in general, although that's one way you could look at it, but he keeps referencing the Mosaic Covenant. And this is contradistincting between the gospel, which is what Christ has accomplished. And this gets rolled up into kind of new covenant way of thinking, which is how it's referred to, covenant. It's a new covenant. And a good way to think of a covenant, by the way, is a contract. It's a good way to think about it. So like when you bought your home and you signed the mortgage documents, right? And you went through escrow and you remember you got your hand cramps when you were signing all the papers at the, at the end of the process, right? You were signing a, a contract, and there were certain obligations on the part of the seller, and there were certain obligations on the part of you, the buyer, when you purchased your home. And so you each were agreeing to different things. And if, there, if something were to go wrong with your home, you know, and you thought that maybe the, the seller had something to do with it and that he was liable, you'd pull out that contract and see what they agreed to. But you couldn't, after the ink was signed, go back and say, I'm going to add paragraph 941 into my mortgage documents and, uh, and I'm going to make the seller responsible for this new section that I've added to the contract. You can't do that once the contract is signed. So th- this is an important way of thinking when we think about these things. And like I pointed out last week, and I'll reiterate, when we get, we're talking about the Mosaic Covenant. Paul is going to talk about it as a contract or a covenant that comes after a previous covenant. The covenant that he's referring to prior to it is the Abrahamic. So the Abrahamic covenant precedes the Mosaic. And he will note, and will emphasize this, that the Abrahamic covenant came first and that the Mosaic covenant could not annul that covenant. Make sense? That the Mosaic covenant had a purpose but its purpose was not to overthrow this, and it was given for a reason, and its reason was not to overthrow the Abrahamic. And so Christ comes and fulfills the Mosaic Covenant. Here's what it says. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's the second one. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That is a bombshell of a sentence. Is a bombshell of a sentence. I remember when I first began to understand this and how I almost couldn't believe what it was saying. Because the system, theological system I grew up in, it was all about me striving to attain perfection by my own efforts. And God was pretty much up in heaven just crossing his arms seeing if I would get my act together. But that's not what this is saying. It's saying something very different. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now think about that. Are you saying, Paul, that the Spirit works miracles among Christians because they hear with faith? They don't have to do anything. You just sit there and just believe it. And you're saying God works miracles because of that? Yeah. 
That's what he's saying, is it not? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. So know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That's an important statement. In Scripture, the Gentiles, that would be all of us. Anyone here have any Jewish blood in them? Okay, no, we're all the goyim. Okay, so we're all goyim, which means we're Gentiles. That means we're not related to Abraham by genetics and by birth, but we are all sons of Abraham and are part of true Israel, not because of blood, not at least not our own, but because of Christ's blood. We're grafted into Abraham. So we are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify, now I, I always have to highlight this word and talk about it, justify means to declare righteous. It's that courtroom word. If you were to go into court back in the old day, during the time when this was written, and uh, you were found not guilty, the judge would <laughs> declare the verdict justified. Dikaiao, not guilty. You are found to be righteous. That would be the verdict. So God would justify who? The Gentiles. By what? By faith. So know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all all nations be blessed. So notice here Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that that statement that we read last week in Genesis 12 about how God, through, through Abram, all nations would be blessed, this is gospel, not law. This is good news, not law. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. Total gift. We continue. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now, I want to make something clear so we don't read this wrong. It is not saying all Christians who desire to do God's will and by faith trust God and serve and love neighbor that they're under a curse. That's not what it's saying. It says all who rely on works of the law. Rely is talking about our right standing before God. So let's get our categories here. And we'll kind of put it this way. So this is God. And this is us. So this is where we talk Deo, before God. If you believe that you're right standing with God, Coram Deo, is established by your keeping the commandments, you're in trouble. Coram Deo are standing before God is purely by grace through faith because of what Christ has done. We obey God 
because we are Christians. We are not made Christians because we obey God. You have to keep those two separate. And this is what Paul is arguing against, this idea that you are made right by your law-keeping. So all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And here's the reason why. The, the Torah explicitly states, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And this phrase right here in the Greek, and do them, has with it this, this idea behind it, and continue and keep on continuing to do them. So an example I use. Any of you keep to-do lists? Anyone that organized? Scott, you have to raise your hand. I've seen you with a Franklin Covey. Okay. All right. So you keep lists. You know, today I got to pull weeds. I got to go milk the cows. I got to run to the grocery store and grab X, Y, and Z, right? You, put, you write these lists down. And then, so at the end of the day, you check that off and you, you've done it. Okay. So here's what the law says. Love God with your whole heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you were to put that on your to-do list, could you check it off as accomplished? <laughs> okay, good luck on that one, right? And if you really want to do that, you've got to put it on tomorrow's list. You've got to put it on the... And, and when could you ever say that you've actually accomplished that? Never. You, you couldn't do it, Right? So, yeah, and, and oh, and by the way, if you want to be graded on like this based on the law, it's not graded on the curve. It's not on the curve. It's either pass or fail. 100% is a pass. Okay, anything below 100% is a fail. So all, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and continue, keep on doing them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. (sighs) Thank God. Because I can tell you this, if my justification depended on me keeping the law, I'm just going to give up. I'm not going to be a pastor anymore and I'm going to go find something really debaucherous to do for the rest of my life because I've only got so many years left. Might as well. Right, we're going to pause my lecture right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's uh, lecture as I ramble my way through the book of Genesis via the book of Galatians, if that makes any sense. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. The management of Marty Python. 
Don's Flying Circus Church would like to again apologize. Normally, we try to do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, the church continues to just parody itself. Case in point, Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed shofar CD. This is a real commercial. When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as Rabbi Rabbi Zeitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Zeitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the end time judgments about to be unleashed on planet earth don't miss out on getting both rabbi michael zeitler's anointed audio cd sound of the shofar plus his brand new prophetic book why israel is supernatural for a donation of 25 dollars shipping and handling is included ask for offer number 9081 call or write today Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. We're going to take a look at the ecclesiastical model employed by much of American evangelicalism today, especially as put forward by the seeker-driven movement. Chris Rosebro talking about his presentation at this summer's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. We're going to take a look at where this idea of a vision-casting leader comes from, what its main tenets are, and we're going to compare that so-called ecclesiastical office to the biblical office of pastor to see if the two are actually synonymous and interchangeable or if this concept of a vision-casting leader actually turns a pastor into a false prophet. You can meet and hear Chris Rosebro making the case against vision-casting leaders in the church June 19th and 20th at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. back 
Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never takes the time to actually work through God's Word in depth. It's an important thing for us. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Here's the balance of today's ramblings through Genesis via the book of Galatians. Here we go. Yeah. So it's evident that no one, not one person, is justified, declared righteous before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Not at all. Not at all. The one who does them shall continue to live by them. Here's what it says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who is hanged on a tree. So notice here, the law, the way it's spoken of, although God's law is holy, God's law is true, it is just, those who are under it are said to be under a curse. At least now that's the case because of our sinful nature. So Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ the blessing of who? Not Moses. Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith, not by works, not by our righteousness. Now, I've spent some time in some Pentecostal circles, and I have been told that I needed to speak in tongues. This is what I was told. And I was told that if I wasn't speaking in tongues, it was because there was some unconfessed sin in my life. And that I wasn't striving hard enough and showing God that I was serious enough to receive this, this, the gift of speaking in tongues. Is that saying that you can receive these gifts by works or by faith? Works. That's works. You've got to try harder. Oh, I never could ever do it. Clearly, I had to unconfessed sin in my life, right? So to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, you can think contract, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. You can say no one annuls a contract you know, or adds to it once it's been signed. Once the ink is dried, that contract's in effect, right? So now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. And that offspring is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards, so the Mosaic Covenant, which comes 430 years after God ratifies the covenant with Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. 
For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So, going back to our, time, going back to our note here, what we'll do is we'll make another one here. We'll just put this on a timeline. So you got the Abrahamic covenant. That looks like a G. Hang on. Abrahamic covenant, 430 years after that, you got Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, we got the uh, giving of the law. And what the idea is, it is a covenant. It is a covenant between God and the people of Israel that is struck there. But that covenant, which comes 430 years after, cannot annul that one. That's the one of note. If this one can't cancel that one, then the question comes up immediately, then what was the purpose of this one? What function does it serve? That's the important part. So what you, know, you Scripture is telling us here, don't think for a second that that law which came at Mount Sinai somehow could undo this. And notice he keeps reiterating, it's promised by faith, by grace, it's a gift. The law says, do this and you will live. Abrahamic covenant says, believe and it's credited to you as righteousness. So we'll come back now to this. Hang on a second here. So why then the law? You ready? It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of sins. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Based on that sentence, is there any any law that can give us life? Nope. But the scripture, watch this, imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. God was literally putting us, specifically the children of Israel, under a guardian, putting us, imprisoning us in a sense, holding everybody at bay and sin at bay until the, until the one promised would appear. But the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. There it is again. Justified. Declared righteous. Not by works, but declared righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Notice a baptismal text here. This is one of the reasons why in my sermons I keep harping on baptism. Okay? As many of you who were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ. Notice this has nothing to do with women's ordination. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. 
So getting Abraham right is a big deal. He's the father of the faith. I mean, Paul writes, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, this is an important way of talking, and we have to do a little cross-reference work here. Offhand, what do you think Paul is talking about when he says elementary principles of the world? What's the referent? There's another, there's another epistle where Paul uses the almost identical language. Elementary principles of the world. Okay, it's Colossians chapter 2. Let's take a look at it real quick. And let's, we'll, we'll do a little bit more of Scripture, interpret Scripture, so we can kind of make sure we got the referent right. Colossians 2... I'll start at verse 1 so we can keep our context. Paul writing to the church in Colossae, who was also struggling with a heresy similar to the Judaizing heresy. There were Judaizing elements that were also mixed with some Gnostic things, too. It's kind of a weird mix. Some strange teaching regarding angels, too. Here's what he says. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. Notice totally different tone that Paul has with this letter to the church in Colossae than with the, you know, oh, you foolish Galatians. He's not talking this way to the people in Colossae. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Oy, I could tell you... If, Every false theology sounds plausible and internally is logically consistent. So that's you got to be careful there. For though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order in the firmness of your faith. So therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So notice what he's talking about here. Okay, so you, 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 you link it to philosophy. Okay, we're going to keep reading though a little bit because it gets, it gets a little more specific. So, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Of, and not according to Christ. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. That's right. Jesus is God in human flesh. That's what Paul's saying. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised. And ladies, this includes you. And I, how do I know that? Well, the text says so. Watch. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, what's the circumcision of Christ? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Notice another baptismal reference. So, the circumcision of Christ, which was performed on you not by human hands, was when you were washed in the waters of baptism. That's what it says. You were buried with him, and now you've been raised from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with him. Who does the making alive? God does. Got to run the verbs. God is made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is a great sentence. By canceling the record of debt with its legal demands. That's what the law does. It creates this huge, ginormous record of debt. Every transgression, every trespass creates an ever-increasing debt that you owe to God for falling short of what it is that he commands us to do in his law. And Christ has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is one of the reasons why I describe it this way. We know that on the last day, the books will be opened. And I don't know about you, but when I was young, I mean, that sentence scared me, just absolutely frightened me, because I know what's going to be in those books, (laughs) right? It's not like God doesn't know, right? So you sit there and you sit there and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, someone's going to read this thing out. I'm, in, I'm toast. I'm in deep kimchi. And this was only when I was like 14. Yeah? Now that I'm 40, that, um, yeah, it's a big book, right? But see, here's what it says. Canceling the record of debt. So all of the pages that have the debt in it They've been canceled. You can, say, you can almost say those pages have been ripped out of that book. This he set aside, that record of debt, nailing it to the cross. So all the pages in, your, in the book that show your debt, your sins, your transgressions, literally those pages have been ripped out, and this says those pages have been nailed to the cross. And you can almost see scrawled in blood, debt paid in Christ's blood. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. What are those? Those are all part of the Mosaic Covenant, right? These are a shadow of the things to come. This is one of the reasons why when we look at the Old Testament, we talk about it as types and shadows. Here, Paul's saying those festivals, those feasts, those requirements for you to keep the new moons and the Sabbaths, those were a shadow of the things to come. And notice that the Sabbath is included in there too. The Sabbath was type and shadow, which is why in the New Covenant, only nine of the ten commandments get brought back in as part of the moral obligations of a Christian. The Sabbath is not ever required by a Christ, uh, for Christians to keep because here it says this was part of the shadow. So these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That includes the Sabbath. The Sabbath, which says that you cannot work, you have to rest, is the substance is Christ. The fulfillment then of the Sabbath is Christ's fulfillment of all the law for us, and it prefigures salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, not by works. That's what the Sabbath truly prefigures. So let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, which is kind of a 
terrible way to live, you know, beating of your body and, you know, and denying yourself things. And the worship of angels and going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason in a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, whom the whole body is nourished in it together through its joints and its ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, there it is again. So we've seen it three times now. Twice here in Colossians 2. Well, actually, we're in 3 now. No, we're in 2. Twice in Colossians 2, once in Galatians. So if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So elemental principles or spirits of the world is linked to philosophy, self-made religion, and rules that say don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Let me give you a modern-day example from America. Don't drink alcohol. Don't smoke cigarettes. Don't smoke cigars. Don't go. Don't chew tobacco. Don't, 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 don't. These all have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Don't sit there and say, oh, I'm, I'm really a holy person, and the reason I'm holy is because I haven't had a drink in 15 years. Paul says, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's of no value in stopping the indulgence in the flesh. So now we know the referent. Elemental spirits of the world. What Paul's talking about in Galatians, we now know what he's talking about here. So Paul, in a sense, is rolling up a, a few things here. So let's go back to our thing. In the same way, we're back in Galatians 4, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elemental principles of the world. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, don't, don't do, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Under the law is a big deal. That's a big phrase. Jesus is huper namas, under the law. To do what? To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Man, we got to spend some time unpacking that. What is a redemption? Let's put this word. Uh, yeah, let's put this uh, word into its Greek context, its first-century Mediterranean context. Ex agorazo, to redeem. This is a slave term. This is referring to slavery. To purchase somebody's freedom from slavery is an ex agarazzo. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, slave talk, to purchase from slavery those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So you see the contrast in the sentences is that you're born a slave to sin and the devil. Christ bleeds and dies for you and purchases you and you are no longer a slave. You are literally, 
You, you, it's like you're on the slave block. I'll buy that person, and you pay that person's redemption price. You bring him home. You take all the shackles off him, and you say, Son, you're my son. And you have adopted that slave, and that slave inherits as if he were born of you flesh and blood. That's what Christ has done for us. It's amazing. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So you'll notice here the way the argument runs. And this is, this is why I wanted to talk about that verb. Uh, exagorazo. The reason why is because up here, it's, there's no talk of slavery. The slave talk begins with the verb. Does that make sense? The slave talk in this chapter begins with you were enslaved to the elemental principles of the world, and then it goes further with the redemption, which everybody in that context seeing this verb would know that's talking about slavery. And then he comes back now and really brings it home. And because you are sons, not slaves, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, you are an heir through God. This is, this is the equivalent. You know, Go back to 19th century United States. You go down to Alabama and you see a kid on the slave block. You pay his redemption price. You bring him home and you make him an heir. And you treat him as a son, not a slave. That's what this is. And understand this then. You're that slave. You are. I am. Each and every one of us, born enslaved to sin, death, the devil. And Christ has paid our redemption price so that we can be free and sons. And we now call God our Father. And this is how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our Father. That's why Jesus says, don't call anyone on earth your father because you have one father who is in heaven. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were, here it is again, enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. See, you, you know about God, but that's, that's not the important part. Here's the important part. You're known by God. He knows you. How then can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? There it is again. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Da, 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 da. All this stuff that looks pious but has no, none, no power whatsoever over the sensual flesh. Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I could say the same thing about the Hebrew Roots movement today. There are a whole truckload of Christians who are going back, just like the Judaizers, going back to those, well, we celebrate the Passover, we celebrate Shabbat, you know, we the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, and we wear the sitzioth, you know, the little tassels around our shirts, and, and we only worship on Saturdays, and all this kind of sitting there going, what is going wrong here? 
How do you read Galatians and come to the conclusion that Galatians means the exact opposite of what it says? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I might have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, I beg you, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you. Now, a little bit of side note here. Nobody knows with certainty what he's talking about. Everybody suspects, based on what Paul writes here, that Paul probably, when he was traveling through Macedonia, washed his face in a stagnant pond and got some icky disease in his eyes. And he had some kind of an eye ailment. And this is the days before they had, um, you know, the ability to fight bacterium and things like that. So here's what it says. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial for you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God. I think a better way to translate that would be messenger of God. I think that's a better translation for Angelos there. You receive me as a messenger of God, as Christ Jesus himself. So what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify that if possible, you would have gouged your eyes out and given them to me. This is why we think he had an eye ailment. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Has anyone experienced that? You tell somebody the truth, you're going to get yourself in trouble. All right? But a theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that they, make, that, they make, that they may make much of them, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish to be present with you now and change my tone from I'm perplexed about you. So tell me, you who desire to be under the law, Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now notice he's switching. He's he's gone from a specific use of the law to a wider definition. Now he's talking about the Torah in general. Okay? Because in the Torah, we have the story of Abraham. But that's not the covenant itself. So notice he's using... The law in a very narrow sense, and he's also using it in a wide sense. Here's what he says. Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through what? Through a promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. By the way, here's a trick question. Where is Mount Sinai? It's in Arabia. Where, the, where they have, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, I have not. There's supposedly Mount Sinai that people go to. That ain't it. I'll show you Mount Sinai when we get to the point. I know exactly where it is. Okay? But it ain't, it ain't where people think it is, or at least where the tourists go, because that's in Egypt. This says it's in where? Arabia. Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia. The name of the mountain is Jabal Allahs. All right? Just keep that in mind. I'll show you it when the time comes. Okay. Backing up. 
One is Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For children, the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman, the one of the promise. For freedom Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Slavery under the law. Look, I, Paul, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. One of the harshest passages in Scripture. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified or declared righteous by the law, you have fallen away from grace. That's how serious this is. You think you're justified by your good works, your law-keeping, and your obedience? Paul is saying you're damned. That's how serious this is. You've fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being, still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. It's pretty clear, right? Man, I wish somebody would have taught this to me when I was 12. It would have saved me a lot of heartache. This is how we interpret Abraham, then, in the story of Abraham. Next week, we'll take a quick look at Romans 4 before we go back into Genesis 12. But you can see now the difference. You can see what's going on. That Abrahamic covenant is the anchor point for the gospel in the Old Testament. If you don't understand that that's the, the covenant of note... You're going to look at the Mosaic Covenant when we get to Exodus chapter 20 and you're going to see all those laws and you're going to think that's the thing that establishes your right standing before God, Coram Deo. But if that's what you're thinking, you're, you don't understand it at all, what's going on. And this is why Galatians was written so that we understand how to rightly get, understand that story so that we don't think that it's our obedience that makes us right before God. It's Christ's obedience that makes us right before God. And he's the one who's paid the redemption price, brought us off the slave block, and made us sons. 
all by grace through faith, not by our works, not because of anything that we have done, but because of his great mercy and love for us. We'll see you next week. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>